Scripture always repeatedly assures us that those who repent from their sins and turn to God and confess their sins and find all of their hope in Jesus Christ can rest in the full assurance of the forgiveness of their sins. This is our comfort as we worship Him today. Having then heard His law and confessed our sins, let's also now open His Word to be taught by Him. Our text this morning comes from 1 Kings chapter 8. First Kings 8, beginning in verse 10. This is at the dedication ceremony of the temple. We read in 1 Kings 8, verse 10, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. Then the king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day that I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there, but I chose David to be my people to be over my people Israel. Now it was in the heart of, my, of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to David my father, Whereas it was in your, ho- in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name." Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. For I have risen in the place of David my father and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have provided a place for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. 
Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. And listen to the plea of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. And listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy because they have sinned against you, and if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sins of your people Israel and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance." If there is famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act And render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. That they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your great name's sake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away captive to the land of the enemy far off or near, 
Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their mind and with all their heart in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause, and forgive your people, your people who have sinned against you, and all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your heritage, which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace." Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them and whenever they giving ear to them whenever they call you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with his hands outstretched toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night, and may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. We'll pause there, and after, at the beginning of the sermon, we'll pick up again in chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll read through chapter 9, verse 9, later. So let's pick up our reading again in 1 Kings 9 now. So the last few verses of 1 Kings 8 describe Solomon's sacrifices that he gave at the end of that uh, dedication prayer. And then chapter 9 shows the Lord's response to that prayer. First Kings 9 then, beginning in verse 1, As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. 
And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, And do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb, become a proverb and a byword among all the peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and laid hold on other gods, and worshipped them, and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them." The text for this morning's sermon is especially the prayer of Solomon, but we'll need to keep this response from the Lord in mind as we consider Solomon's prayer, and we'll come back to that response towards the end. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that that we observe as we study the book of Kings is that even though many things are different between then and now, that was 3,000 years ago, still... God's ways of dealing with us have not fundamentally changed. He's the same God. And it's true that we're we're in a very different chapter now in redemptive history, but they're different chapters in the same story. In 2017, here in Elora, we are part of that same story that ties us together with Solomon and even as far back as Abraham and Adam. And that's really important for us to recognize. This is one of the most common mistakes in modern Christian evangelicalism, including many Reformed and Presbyterian and other Protestant traditions. Christians sometimes feel and perhaps even speak as if they're dealing with a different God in the Old Testament than the one that we know from the New Testament. We say things like, oh yes, but, but that was the Old Testament. God wouldn't do that or require that now. And if we do those, if that's our frame of mind, if we do that sort of thing, what it means is we don't rightly understand who our God is now in the New Testament because the reality is he hasn't changed. A good example of this is the temple. What do we modern Christians do with the fact that there was a temple in the Old Testament? We find Solomon here at the inauguration of the temple, and it brings us immediately to that question. What does the God that we know have to do with temples? What does the almighty, eternal God have to do with earthly buildings? The Old Testament puts so much emphasis 
on the temple. It's so prominent in not only the narratives, but also the prophecies and even the psalms that we sing. We, we sang Psalm 122 earlier, and it praises the glory of the temple. What does our God have to do with temples? Temples seem almost, almost petty, like things that small gods might need, but why would our God want a temple? Does God really care so much about a building that's made of wood and stone and gold? Well, before we, we get to answering that question, let's quickly review what we read a moment ago this morning to try and get the broad outlines of, of the text before us. You can see that Solomon's dedication speech begins in verse 14. It says, Then the king faced about or turned about and blessed all the assembly of Israel while the assembly of Israel was standing. And that speech, that prayer, continues all the way to verse 61. It's a very long prayer. And it's, it's basically made of, of three pieces, his speech as a whole. First, there's his blessing. That's in verses 14 through 21. He turns and blesses the people. Then there's his prayer to God in verses 22 through 53. And then there's his final benediction in verses 54 through, through 61. So that's the, the structure of Solomon's speech. And if you look just at, at the prayer, verses 22 to 53, there's also a structure in that prayer. There's an introduction, verses 22 through 30. There's a conclusion, 52 to 53. And then there's seven petitions. You see them blocked off in, in separate paragraphs. And those are obviously the, the heart, the, the content, or what English teachers would say, the, the body of, of the prayer. So what's this, this prayer all about? Well, the main idea in Solomon's prayer, the main request, if you can boil it down to a single request, is that God would make his name dwell. We'll talk in a moment about what that means. That God would make his name dwell in the temple so that whenever anyone prayed in the temple or even towards the temple, that God would hear them and act in response to those prayers. That's the fundamental request that Solomon is bringing before God. And you can see that right, right already in the beginning of the prayer. If you look at verses 28 through, 28 through 30, you see that Solomon asks there, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. That's what he wants God to do. Open his eyes and open his ears toward that house and listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. So he wants the temple to be the place where God's people can go to pray and he prays that God would hear whenever anyone prays there or in that direction. You can see that again in, in just about every request, all of seven of those petitions that comes back again and again. Now I mentioned there are these seven specific petitions in Solomon's prayer. They start in verse 31 and they go all the way down to verse 53. 
And if you look at these, these seven petitions, you can see that Solomon is trying to describe all the possible situations, different life circumstances that God's people might find themselves in. And he prays that God would hear his people in all of those times, whenever they prayed in or towards the temple. So they include times when God's people needed wisdom and guidance to make difficult decisions. They include times when when God's people were defeated by enemies, times of drought, times of famine or pestilence or locusts or other things that destroy the economy. Also, he includes prayers of individual people. You see that in verse 38. Every person has different afflictions and concerns on their own heart. It includes prayers from foreigners. You see that in verse 41. Foreigners who are going to learn about God and want to serve him. It includes times when God's people find themselves in exile. And and there's seven petitions, because I'm sure you've heard this before. In the Hebrew Bible, seven is the number of fullness or completeness. And so the idea is, in every situation, in any situation, that God would hear his people when they pray toward this place and forgive and answer their prayer. Now it's good to realize most, not all, but most of these petitions, these situations that Solomon is describing, are allusions back to the covenant curses that Moses mentions in Deuteronomy 28. War, drought, famine, enemies, exile. These are all curses of the covenant if God's people would forsake him. So Solomon recognizes there's a very real possibility that these things are going to happen. And you see, if you read the rest of the book of Kings, that that's exactly what happens. Now, it's good just to stop and remember, the main focus, it's a surprising reality if you think about it, the main focus in this dedication prayer, the dedication of the temple, is about prayer and relationship with God. That's kind of surprising because usually when you mention the temple, you would think of sacrifices. That's the main event and activity that happens in the temple. But Solomon doesn't once mention sacrifices in his dedication prayer. The main focus instead is on relationship with God, especially through prayer. So for Solomon, the temple has everything to do with the relationship between God and his people, both corporately and individually. Sacrifices, of course, Solomon recognizes it. They're a necessary part of that relationship. But the prayer, but, but prayer is still considered the most fundamental part of our relationship with God. It's the most basic aspect of how we relate to God, both corporately as a church and also individually as people. And so one of the things for for us to recognize here as we reflect on this prayer is that even though the notion of a temple is very strange and, and foreign to us modern Christians, the focus of Solomon's prayer is not at all far removed from our lives and our experiences. 
That's our greatest desire as well, that God would listen to our prayers whenever we come before Him, that He would hear us, that He would remember our afflictions, that He would forgive us when we are in need of forgiveness. So Solomon's prayer is not at all far removed from our lives today. But that still does leave us with the question, what about this temple? Why did God have a temple? Why did God need a temple? What does the almighty, transcendent God who created the universe have to do with temples? Solomon speaks about building a house for God. Does God need a house? Did God live in a house? To us, the idea of God having a house or a temple seems almost belittling. Other gods might need temples, but our God rules the universe. He doesn't need a temple. God can't be contained anywhere. You might think of what the Apostle Paul himself even said when he spoke to these Greek pagans in front of their temples. And he said, The God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't dwell in temples made with hands nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. So do we have a different God in the New Testament, the God that we find in the Old Testament? Well, of course we know we don't. And notice that Solomon recognizes the same problem here in his prayer. If you look at verses 27 through, through 29, he asks, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven. He almost sounds exactly like Paul here. Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. And yet, he says, Have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, listening to the cry and the prayer that your servant prays before you, that your, that your eyes may be open night and day towards this house, the place of which you have said, this, this phrase is very important, my name shall be there, that you shall listen to the prayer that your servant offers toward this place. So did God dwell in the temple? Solomon himself says emphatically, no, God did not dwell in that temple. He makes a very critical distinction. He says, my name shall dwell there, or the Lord's name shall dwell there. And you see that come back over and over. In in verse 17, you see it there. He says, it was in the heart of David, my father, to build a house, not for God, but for the name of of the Lord God. You see it in verse 18 again, where God responds, The son who shall be born to you shall build the house for my name. And you see that phrase, that expression come back over and over again also in this prayer. So, what does that mean? That God's name would dwell in the temple? Well, it means this even though God is not to be contained, he cannot be trapped in a building. He does desire to be found also on earth. He wants the worship of his name, to which all the nations are called, to be manifested in visible, concrete ways. 
The worship of God is not an invisible, private reality that every person determines for himself in his or her own way. No, he is the living God, glorious and unchanging, and he expects us to be brought into conformity with who he is and not the other way around. So as God establishes his worship on the earth, that's been his goal ever since the fall into sin, as he establishes or reestablishes the worship of his name on the earth, he does so in a way that people can see it here on earth and participate in it. That's what it means for the temple to be a house for God's name. People know this is where you find the worship of the true God. So the temple was not God's literal house. Even Solomon acknowledges that. But it was the place where at the time the worship of God was centered. So that all people everywhere, whether in Israel or in nations far away, would know where to find him. So that God's people Israel could be directed to him and have relationship with him and not with just an imaginative form of who he is. We don't worship God by imagining who the God is that we would like to have and then worshiping that God. No, we worship the true God. And so he manifests himself in concrete, visible ways. So that's our first point, and it's essential for rightly understanding what God would teach us in this passage. Even though he is the creator of the universe, and he's everywhere present, and even though he's spiritual, and as the Lord Jesus says, to be worshipped in spirit and truth, even still, he expects our lives to, worship, to show our worship in real, concrete visible, demonstrable ways. He expects us to worship Him in real, concrete ways. It's not enough to say that I worship God or relate to God in whatever way I please, whatever way I imagine God might desire, and I live the life that I feel is right for me. That is not the worship of our God. Instead, it it is self-worship. It is idolatry. In the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, as we'll see in a moment, the worship of God was centered somewhere. In the Old Testament, it was centered in Jerusalem. And anyone who refused to worship him there was refusing to worship him at all. They were worshiping a God of their own making. Now, of course, it's true in the New Testament The worship of God is not centered in the temple in Jerusalem. But we will see in a moment, the worship of God still has a particular center even here on earth. But before we go there, there's something else we should notice in this text. Notice how the temple is tied to the throne of Solomon. Solomon himself makes this connection himself, and he's very emphatic about it, and it's good for us to pick up on this. So notice already in verse 13, Solomon says, I have built you a lofty and exalted house, a place for you to dwell forever. And even, even though this is the dedication ceremony of the temple, you notice the very first paragraph, the first 
several verses, starting in verse 15, Solomon doesn't even talk about the temple. He starts by talking about the throne. Verse 15, he says, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who with his hand has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David, my father. Uh, And then he speaks about how God established the throne. He's not even speaking yet about the temple. And he emphasizes that point over and over again in his dedication ceremony. Now, we can be honest. Solomon was probably also using this as a moment to establish his own throne, to strengthen his own power over Israel. But it's also a theme that, that, that is here for us to pick up on and learn from. It's not wrong for Solomon to make that connection, even if he had selfish motives. The truth is, this was exactly the Lord's plan all along. He establishes his name, that's his worship, together with his kingdom, the establishment of righteousness and justice. God's name and God's kingdom always go hand in hand. They can never be divorced from one another. Here's another way to see the importance of this. Think about it this way. If you know the Old Testament well, you might remember that Israel already had a tabernacle when this temple was built. They already had a place where the worship of God was centered. So you might ask yourself, why did God's people even need a temple when there was already a tabernacle? What does the temple add that wasn't there in the tabernacle? Well, you find the answer in a number of places in this text. Take a look with me at at verse 13, where Solomon says, I have built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. That's what the temple adds that wasn't there with the tabernacle. It adds permanence. A tabernacle is temporary. It's very deliberately so. It was a tent. It was made of cloth. It was made to be mobile. But God never intended to remain in a tent. His plan all along was to establish a permanent kingdom on earth and then to permanently establish his name in the midst of that kingdom so that all the peoples of the earth would know, would know him and would know where to find him. So here's, here's where it all comes together then. The Lord accepted Solomon's request to, to listen to the prayers that are directed in or towards that temple and to honor the throne of David and the promise that he made to David. The Lord accepted that request because he knew that his temple needed to be tied to his throne. You cannot have the worship of God without also the establishment of God's kingdom, the righteousness and justice that God desires to see established on earth. In other words, you cannot have the worship of God without the kingdom of God, the transformation of human life and affairs. God insists that the two always go hand in hand. Now, we read from from chapter 9. That's still part of the same narrative. They're meant to be taken as, as one unit. And you can see that the Lord actually meets Solomon sometime afterward and responds to his prayer. God listened to his prayer. And we see he accepts his request to make his name dwell there. 
but he does so on the condition of obedience. He makes that so clear in in chapter 9. He says, I've heard your prayer and your supplication, which you made before me. That's in in verse 3. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. But, he says in verse 6, he says, But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I've set before you, but go and serve other gods, then I will cut off Israel from the land. And he says, I will make this temple into a heap of ruins, a byword and a proverb among the nations. And we know today that temple is in a heap of ruins. The Lord fulfilled his promise exactly to the word. It's what the Lord Jesus also said. The disciples pointed out the grandeur of the temple, and the Lord said, Do you see all these things? Not one stone will be left upon another. So there's something very ominous and foreboding also here in 1 Kings 9 about the way that the Lord responds to Solomon's request. He does accept Solomon's prayer. He accepts the proposal to make his name dwell in the temple. But you sense as you read this, things are not going to end well in this chapter. And they didn't. We know Solomon ultimately forsook the Lord, and so did the rest of Israel and Judah. And here's the thing then. I made the point that the worship of God is tied to the throne of God. The kingdom of God and the worship of God always come together. And so... If Solomon and his descendants walked away from God, if they couldn't be the kings that they were meant to be, then the temple couldn't stay there forever either. And so even though this text shows us glorious things about the nature of God's kingdom and God's plans for the world, he wants to establish his kingdom. He wants his worship to be found visibly, concretely on the earth. Yet this text is overshadowed by a note of sadness because we realize Solomon wasn't that king. And so the temple also couldn't stay there forever. So this text cries out for a king who would not be the failure that Solomon ultimately became. Without such a king, there can be no temple either. With no king, there's no kingdom. With no kingdom, there's no worship. And that's why Jesus Christ needed to come as the son of God that Solomon never was. The son of David who would the son of David who would not fail. He not only needed to restore the worship of God, restore the true temple, but also restore the kingdom of God. Again, the two go hand in hand. And because the Lord Jesus Christ obeyed God and delivered his people from their sin, which no other king could do, God placed him on the throne forever. And that's a forever that lasts forever, unlike the forever of this text, because Solomon walked away. And so you'll notice that that, uh, Solomon's prayer 
includes the Lord's plan for all the nations. He sees himself in God's greater plan for human history. You notice that in verse 41, for example, when he speaks of foreigners coming and hearing God's great name and gathering towards this house. Solomon sees himself in that greater redemptive plan, but he fails to be the part of that plan that he himself thought he would be. The Lord Jesus has a kingdom that truly isn't limited to the borders of Israel like Solomon's kingdom was. Christ's kingdom extends to every tribe and tongue and nation. His kingdom is the obedience of the nations, all the nations submitting to his rule. That's the kingdom that Christ is now establishing in our day and age. This kingdom is already coming. It's on its way, and it's here already now in this world. It's already seen in the lives that are changed by the gospel, in the communities that are changed by the gospel. And so it's, it's no surprise, brothers and sisters, that God has no use for a temple that's in Jerusalem. His kingdom now is over the whole earth, and his worshipers are also found over the whole earth. And so the Lord Jesus, as I referred referred to earlier, says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So what happened then to the temple? Does our God still have any use for temples? Well, brothers and sisters, there is still a temple today. God still very much makes use of temples. Our temple is Christ himself. You can see that Christ is Christ performs the same role that the temple performed. Just as Solomon prayed that God would hear and answer every prayer directed to the temple, so now Christ tells his disciples to direct every prayer to the Father through him. The Lord Jesus taught over and over again, I am the temple of God. Think of John 1 verse 14 where it says the word, referring to the Son of God, the word became flesh, and literally in the Greek it says, tabernacled himself among us, and we saw his glory. John makes that connection. The word is our tabernacle or temple. And Jesus also told the people, destroy this temple And in three days, I will raise it up again. And of course, he was referring to himself, his own body. And so he tells us also to ask all things uh, from the Father in his name. He is the temple of God. Just as God in 1 Kings 8 and 9 promised to hear every prayer directed to him in the temple or through the temple, so he now promises to hear and answer every prayer directed to and through the name of Jesus Christ, his son whom he sent into the world. Now, our postmodern mindset might push back against this kind of God. Isn't God bigger than this? Can't he answer every prayer directed to him without needing the name of Jesus Christ? 
Why do we have to answer to end our prayers through the name of Jesus Christ? Now that, that kind of argument might sound at first like it's making God bigger. He's, he doesn't need these particulars, these names and, and details. But it isn't making God bigger at all to make that argument. It only appeals to us because it removes God's claim over the particulars. It turns God into an idea that we can enjoy when we like. We can pray through the name of Jesus. We can pray in some other way. But we don't have to actually give any account to God. We don't have to worship him in the way that he reveals himself to us. That doesn't make God bigger at all. That's blasphemy because he is the only true and living God. There is only one God, and he sent only one Savior into the world, Jesus Christ. And we will either reject that Savior and insist on making our own prayers in our own names to the kind of God that we would like to pray to, or we will bow down to that Savior and be saved by his grace in his name because he is the only true God. He is the way that God has chosen to make himself known to this world. And so if we reject him, just like if the Israelites rejected the temple, they were rejecting God. If anyone rejects Jesus Christ whom God has sent, likewise, he rejects God himself. So the worship of God then is no longer centered in the temple in Jerusalem. Our prayers don't have to be directed there either. We don't have to pray towards the east as Jews still do or as Muslims also do towards Mecca. That's not the God that that sorry, that's not because the God of the New Testament is is more open-minded than the God of the Old Testament as if now you can worship him however you like. No, there is still a temple. We must direct our prayers to the temple, but the temple is now in heaven, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, as it turns out, one final brief point, Scripture teaches us that there is a second answer to this question, where is the temple today? It is in heaven, yes, in the person of Jesus Christ, but it's also right here in our midst Because we belong to Christ, Scripture also teaches we are the temple of God. This is where God is to be found. Paul himself teaches this in a number of places. Peter teaches it, John teaches it, and even the Lord Jesus himself teaches this on several occasions. We, the church, are the body of Christ, and so we also are the temple of God. Where is the worship of God to be found on earth? It's found where the church of God gathers. The church is the center of the kingdom that Christ is building, and it's the center of the worship of the only true God. The church is the address, so to speak, where all the nations of the earth can turn to find the living God. The church is the place where God expects his people to come and worship him. So again, just like the Jews, if they had rejected the temple, were rejecting the living God, so us also, anyone who rejects the church, rejects the the, the worship of the true God. He expects to be found here in the church. 
We cannot claim to worship God by staying at home, by refusing to be with the church, by uh, founding our own home congregations that consist of basically ourselves and perhaps our children because we don't want to be there where the rest of God's people are. You will not find the worship of the true God that way. That's worshiping the same golden calf that Jeroboam worshipped. We won't find God by worshiping him in our backyard. We won't find him by taking a hike through nature. Of course, he's present everywhere. He can be found in all the details of creation. We see his signature there. He's at our sides wherever we are. But God expects and even demands to be sought and found in his church. Paul says to Timothy that the church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. In other words, it's in the church that the only true God is found. Yes, the church is scattered across the world, and no, it isn't contained in only one denomination or federation. And yet, wherever God's people gather to worship him in spirit and truth, that is the temple on earth. That is where God's God calls all people to, to find him and to worship him. Right now, it's about 5.30 p.m. in Jerusalem, and many Jews, ethnic, ethnically speaking, are right now speaking, or right now weeping, that is, at the old wall of the old temple, still crying out for God to hear their prayer. But he was true to his word that he kept in, that, that he spoke and now keeps in chapter 9. He did make that house into a heap of ruins, a proverb and a byword among the peoples. Even as we read those verses, we fulfill those words. But that doesn't mean that there is no temple or that God doesn't dwell among his people anymore. No, the Jews missed the true temple coming into the earth. God does still dwell among his people, just as he did then. And he does so through Jesus Christ and his body, which is also found on the earth. That's where the only true God expects to be sought and found. So, brothers and sisters, let us renew our commitment to come to God where he has said he will be found. He is found in his Son, Jesus Christ. Let us always offer our prayers through him, through his name. And when we worship him, let us also renew our commitment to always do so together with the body of Christ in the midst of his church, because that's where he desires to be worshipped. That's where he has promised to accept also our worship and to hear the prayers that we bring before him. Together, we are the temple of God. May it then always be our pleasure and delight to be here in what really is his sanctuary, not because of the building itself, but because of the church that gathers together here. And as we worship him, let us also remember his kingdom goes hand in hand with his worship. So let us also then pray and labor for the building of his kingdom here in Alora, for the strengthening of his church also here at the center of that kingdom. And let us then continue to encourage one another and strengthen one another 
Because through the Spirit working among us, God desires that all the peoples of the earth, as Solomon wrote, that all the peoples may know his name and fear him, that they may, do, that they may know that the Lord is God, that there is no one else. Amen. Let's respond by saying,